As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. show and our latest batch of listener questions on today's show we're looking at a new u.s national team coaching solution we're looking at the burgeoning soccer scene in saudi arabia Mm. and we're changing the rules for the goalkeeper my name's ryan bailey joining me today we have a man who's going to see international soccer in the flesh on this very day graham rutherford hello hello ryan bailey yes i am going to see Scotland versus Georgia later this evening. Quite quite unnerved by how well Scotland are doing at the moment. Three wins out of three, nine points out of nine, beating Spain and Norway. We're surely going to screw it up tonight and lose to Georgia. Mm. To quote every Star Wars movie, this feels like a trap, Graham. It does. It does. This, yeah, I am genuinely very nervous about tonight's match because we have won three out of three. It's one of those things where you realise actually you preferred it when there was nothing on the line and you were bad and you could just rock up and have like a comfortable 90 minutes. But something tells me tonight is not going to be comfortable. Okay, well, wish you every success in that one, Graham. It is good to... I, I do generally like to see the home nations such as Scotland do well and get do to the though? tournament. Do you though? Do you? Do well, you really? Only because England are doing incredibly well at the moment and it means <laughs> there's a good chance of annihilation on a big stage next summer if we meet. Sure. Yeah, right? Logic. There's some logic there. Um, Graham, how do you, I've, I've expressed on the Patreon feed, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show, if you want to join us there on our bonus show, that this window has been the most pointless window of all time. How have you felt about the international, uh, the international games in the past week or so? So obviously from a Scotland point of view, very much enjoyed pulling <laughs> Erling Haaland's pants down in front of the world and winning 2-1 in and, and Oslo. Uh, I watched some of the Nations League games, or the two um, UEFA Nations League games, I, I should say. The final very much felt like, so the Spain-Croatia final very much felt like the last game in a very long season. Both teams absolutely out on their feet. So I do believe that at the elite level, when you're talking about Man City players and Premier League players and Barcelona players and all those all those sort of guys, they need a holiday at this point. But yeah. 
for uh, for Scotland right now, it's it's um, been a better June window than we are used to so far. But I am wary of recording this before the home game against Georgia, which we should win, which in- inevitably we won't. Well, yeah, that would be quite a thing if you lost this one and had won the previous few games, Graham. Indeed, indeed. Uh, what did you make of the uh, US in the CONCACAF Nations League, Graham? Uh, Fuller and Balogun obviously uh, making English people slightly nervous with his performing <laughs> on the big stage there. I enjoyed uh, Joe's pitch invasion after the Balogun <laughs> goal in, in, in Vegas. He had a cowboy hat on and everything. He was having a right old Las Vegas good time. Yeah, I, I thought the US were very good in both games, not just against Canada, but against Mexico. Balogun just raises the ceiling of that team, doesn't he? I mean, the mm. way that Reyna plays that pass through for Balogun and then Balogun, I think, either takes a touch or he, or he finishes first time after playing on the shoulder of the last defender. The US haven't really had a striker who can who can do that for a very long time. And also the way that he creates space for himself and can create for himself. Yeah, Ricardo Pepe and, and Hadji Wright certainly aren't doing that. Although, having said that, I would like to have seen how Hadji Wright would have finished that Balogun chance. It would have been the most crazy finish of, of all time and inevitably that he would have pulled out of his back pocket. Indeed. Well, all the magic happens in Las Vegas, as we've established. That's canon on TSS, Graham. Uh, just the two of us on listening to questions today. Taylor is off on uh, having a few days, a very well-deserved days off, is Taylor. And uh, Joe recovering from his trip to Vegas. I assume he didn't have enough Hattie B's hot chicken. That's why he needs a bit more recovery time, right? His his, his friends had to recover him from the roof of Caesar's Palace, I heard. That's what happened. <laughs> with his with his mattress. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, why don't we get straight into the listener questions then, Graham? One more reminder, patreon.com slash Show if you want more fun and games from us. Some bonus videos coming up. I bet I bet you Graham's going to do one at Amden Park tonight, aren't you, Graham? Aren't you? I am indeed. Yeah. I am indeed. I'm hoping to get there early enough. There's a Pat Nevin DJ set before <gasps> the match. So I'm hopeful. Pat Nevin, I don't, I don't know, is Pat Nevin on American TV or is he just like a British pundit? He's not. He's on the Guardian football podcast a lot. But if, Pat, yeah. if you could explain his oeuvre a bit, Graham. Yeah, so Pat Nevin used to play for Chelsea, very good player um, back in the day. He's now a, a pundit on, on on British football TV, but he likes his records and he likes his music and he will be doing a, a wee DJ set at Hamden before the game. So I'm hoping to get there early enough to uh, catch some of that because that sounds very entertaining. Wow, playing some clashes, classic Scottish music like... Uh, um, oh, come on, don't pretend like we uh, haven't contributed to the cultural zeitgeist. Come on. Uh, Biffy Clyro. Well, they're they're <laughs> modern, you know, basically rollers and all that, all that good stuff. Sure, sure, cool. All right, well, we look forward to that, Graham. Uh, plenty more coming on the Patreon feed. I'm going to Glastonbury Festival this weekend. I think I'll do a video there. That'll be fun, won't Ooh. it? Mm, yes. In the meantime, Ben Sundstrom has been in touch. During the post-match of the USA-Mexico game, there was talk about how a big-name manager couldn't be brought in for the men's team at an exorbitant wage and not for the women's team at an equally exorbitant wage. A solution, says Ben, one manager for both teams. Managers have coached club and international teams simultaneously before, but could a world-class manager like a Pep, a Mourinho or a Klopp feasibly coach both the US MNT and the US WNT at the same time? I'm going to go hide behind something while you answer this one, Graham. <laughs> yeah, so um, first of all, I, di- I did catch that suggestion on the CBS broadcast, and, and, and I have to say straight off the bat, I don't really like that suggestion about US soccer not bringing in a big name expensive manager for the men's team because they'd also need a, a big name expensive manager for the women's team because the gist of that, as I hear it, 
is essentially it's the women's team's fault that the men don't have a better manager. And and the truth of the matter is, it wasn't like there was a big name manager waiting in the wings to to, to take this job for the for the USMNT. It just wasn't feasible in, in in a football sense. So I don't really like the suggestion that was made there. But if we're taking Ben's question as as a general conceptual um, idea, having one manager for both teams, I was trying to think of. If if anyone has done this in the past, I couldn't find I couldn't find anyone who who has coached the men's and a and a and a women's team simultaneously. Certainly not in the professional game. I don't believe there was overlap in John Herdman being men's and women's team manager for Canada, but that was maybe the closest we've come to it happening at a you know a, a high level of the professional game. I do think it would be more feasible in the international game where you maybe don't have the day-to-day training and, and um, kind of all the da- daily responsibilities of, of the club game. I think it would be just too much to do at club level. However, having said that, I think logistically there would still be clashes at, at international level too. So, for example, the USMNT right now have just finished the Nations League and the Gold Cup matches start this weekend as well. And this is very valuable prep time for the for the women's team, for the USWNT, before the World Cup. And then I believe there would be some clashing with friendly matches as well while Gold Cup is still happening. So that wouldn't really work. Um, also, I can understand why you would want a, like a different person for different squads. Obviously, Matt Crocker is the guy for US Soccer who's a sporting, the new sporting director. It's his job to ensure a, con- a coherent identity across the whole program, which encapsulates both the women's side and the men's side. But there's no guarantee that on a personal level that one manager would be a good fit for both squads. They are groups of, of people. And even if they have a, a similar identity in a football sense, there's no guarantee that they'll have the same identity on a, on a personal level. So... Just because Greg Berhalter is popular for the US uh, MNT in their in their locker room, doesn't mean he would be the right fit for the US WNT. Even if the two managers mm. Berhalter and Vlatko have a kind of similar footballing ideology, do you get what I mean there? I do get what you mean. Yeah, you you should as a philosophy probably as a nation have the same soccer philosophy across your mental winners team. That does make sense. But I think there are more problems created than solved with this with this whole situation. I'd say Graham, and you mentioned. The, the scheduling issues there. Like, say, was it Gus Hiddink who did Chelsea and Russia? Was that he, yeah. he did? So that kind of thing, when you're going from club management to international management, they're in, they're, they're siloed off. They're in separate time periods of the year. So you can kind of make that happen. But when you've got the US women and the US men in action at the same time, I don't see how you pull this one off. Logistically speaking, yeah. that's, that's difficult. You need to build like a training ground that has two pitches and then some a, a, like a trench in the middle and the manager can just face one way for for moments and then turn around and face the other way and the men's and women's you know are training on on both pitches. Ah. I do believe actually that Carlo Ancelotti is going to do the old um club and international management at the same time trick. Very championship manager 2002-2003. I read a, a a Brazilian report that he's apparently going to take the Brazil job and not do it full time until 2024 and then kind of jet in to coach some matches while he's still Real Madrid manager is apparently what's going to happen. So I look forward to seeing how he will he still be as like laid back in his vibes will he still have his cigar out while he's managing two teams and oh by the way it's Real Madrid and Brazil like the two most high pressure jobs in world football I think that just makes him even more relaxed Graham the harder the job the more relaxed he gets <laughs> it's not why I imagine it works for Carlo Ancelotti and he's going to be spending a lot of time in the air I think if he gets some nice you know that first class premium seating 
he's going to be quite relaxed. It's like 10 hours to lay down and, you know, have a To be fair, if you're going to get a manager to to manage two teams at the same time, get Ancelotti. Right. Like, he's, <laughs> he stands the best chance of doing that. But fund- fundamentally speaking with this question, Graham, I suppose the, the question is, is a coach half as good as Pep Guardiola full-time worth half of Pep Guardiola's time? Does that make sense? Like, is it worth having a really good manager for 50% of the time or having a manager who's half as good as a good manager for the whole time? Like, philosophically, that's a difficult one to answer, I'd say. Uh, I don't know if it is. I want someone that's there all the time. As good as Pep Guardiola is, I don't think you want him literally phoning it in as your national team manager. So, yeah, I think someone who can maybe show up every day for the job is probably the best route to go down. Also... What's the problem with getting a coach in on an exorbitant wage for men's and women's team? Why can't they just do that for both? Is there a money shortage in America? Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't really get the suggestion. To be honest, that's that's what I said at the, at the top of the answer was. I, I didn't really think there was much mileage in in that talking point. Um, who would be the 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 top of the list in the women's game right now? Maybe Serena Wiegmann would be mm-hmm. top of the list. So I, I don't know. I, I I'm not sure U.S. soccer's inability to get Serena Wiegmann stopped the USMNT hiring Pepper Klopp, to be honest. All right. Well, then, uh, we hope you answered your question there. And just remember, it's all worked out great. Berhalter's is back, so all thumbs up all round. Everything's going to be awesome anyway uh, on that front. Thank you very much for the question. Let's go, Graham, to Lewis Capaldi. We were talking hey, about musicians. There we go. We found one. We found a Scottish musician. He's Scottish, right? <laughs> Yes, indeed, right? yeah, very Scottish. I don't right. think there's anyone more Scottish in the world than Lewis Capaldi. <laughs> well, Lewis, thank you for writing, and it's an honour to have you writing into TSS, if it is indeed you. The Scottish Premiership could do with a restock of American-born talent, says Lewis Capaldi. Which current players employed in MLS should move to the land of Ian Brew? Accent mine. Uh, should Aidan Morris <laughs> rejoin his crew teammate Chris Cadden at Hibs, for example? So first of all, I wouldn't wish a transfer to Hibs on my worst enemy. So Aidan Morris, stay away from, uh, stay away from Hibs. But I do have some suggestions of of MLS players who would do well out of a move to the Iron, the, the land of Iron Brew. Is that now our, our official uh, title as a country? I'll I'll, I'll take that. That's it's on the. That. I think it's on the passport in the little script writing on the front, right? <laughs> I would actually like that if I could. If, if you could select a passport, um, I would choose that one. What, what blows people's minds, by the way, Graham, is on the on my passport and on yours, there is a unicorn on it, and nobody really notices that, and that's because of Scotland, right? Am I wrong? Am I right? I think You're I'm telling right. me things I don't know. There's a unicorn on my passport. There is. Look harder. There's a there's a unicorn and a lion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the unicorn's right. Scottish. Why, oh well, I know that the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, I believe. Yep. There you go. Um, so that would make sense but I've never noticed it's on my passport so yeah let's have a unicorn and iron brew on the passport anyway some <laughs> suggestions the first name that springs to mind is Brandon Vasquez so he was linked with Rangers recently in the real world and there is a big opportunity at Rangers for for someone for a, for a number nine they are completely rebuilding their squad at the moment they need a number nine. Alfredo Morelos has, has just left at the end of the season Cholak did reasonably well last season but there's some question marks over him now, we can argue about the general quality of the Scottish Premiership, but the fact of the matter is that if you go to Celtic or Rangers and you start banging in the goals in the league and in European competition as well, you're going to be playing in either the Champions League or the Europa League, you will get noticed. And you will get noticed by big European teams. You'll get noticed by big Premier League teams. We've seen a number of, of, of players use Celtic Rangers as springboards to the Premier League. 
And Vasquez at, at Rangers, there's a place to be won at number nine. He would get good service from Todd Cantwell in behind him, who's settled in very well since joining in, in January. A very good pl- player. Sort of lost his way at Norwich, but I think we can all agree has a lot of potential. And Rangers need an out-and-out goal scorer, and I, w- I would like this move for him. So Vasquez to Rangers is one suggestion. I'd love to see John Tolkien in Scottish football. MLS and Scottish Premiership have similar chaotic vibes I would say and Tolkien with the the blonde mullet is all about those vibes uh, <laughs> Rangers again would be a good fit Borna Barisic is, is he's either left or he's leaving Rangers there's so many players leaving Rangers at the moment that I kind of lose track but Barisic is needing replaced so they need a left back and as good as John Tolkien is and the potential that he has when I watch him it feels like he needs to develop more on the ball and similar to what I said about Brendan Aronson going to Celtic last week on listener questions, Tolkien playing for Rangers in Scotland, he would see plenty of the ball. He could improve that area of his game. Um, so I would like that move for him. A couple other suggestions. If Kyogo Furuhashi leaves Celtic this summer, which seems maybe not likely, but certainly possible, I think Jesus Ferreira would be an interesting option for Celtic. A very different sort of centre forward to Brandon Vasquez, of course, but Kyogo does a lot of pressing he drifts he drops deep he links up the play and Ferreira of course does a lot of those things and then finally let's get Eric Williamson to Aberdeen I know Joe will be delighted about this about moving one of his one of his favorite USMNT players to the Scottish Premiership he'll be in favor of that but here's my case so Ross McCrory McCrory um, who is a midfield anchor he's just left Aberdeen to join Bristol City for three million pounds Aberdeen will be in European group stage football next season they finished third last season there's a sense they're onto a good thing under Barry Robson, new manager. And Portland seem to be struggling a little bit at the moment, if not in terms of results, certainly in terms of the sense that maybe they're at the end of a cycle and Aberdeen are at the start of a cycle, an exciting cycle. Um, so yeah, Eric Williamson to Aberdeen. Let's just not ask Christian Ramirez's wife what she thought of Aberdeen when uh, when he was playing there. And, it, and it's all good. Very nice, eclectic and warm. That was the answer, right? She kind of implied that they were like living in i don't know like beirut or wartime beirut or something <laughs> like that and look aberdeen is it's known as the granite city aberdeen right due to the fact that a lot of the buildings are are built with granite so it's a little bit gray in terms of its of its look but it's a big city there's stuff to do there but yeah christian ramirez's partner not so keen on the dons fair enough is graham do you think scotland is fundamentally a good place for us players to go i mean obviously there's a good pipeline there i i, I work a bit with a team in USO orange county who have a relationship with glasgow rangers it seems like it seems like there's a there's a compatibility there yeah i think so i think in terms of the certainly coming from mls i would consider mls to be a little bit more physical than some of the the european leagues certainly and that is something that gets said about the scottish premiership as well so i think american players or mls players come to scotland have a bit of an advantage in that respect you rarely see if a, if an american player or an mls player fails in scotland it's generally not because of their lack of physicality they tend to be pretty well equipped in in, in that regard so yeah i think there's it's it can be a good place for american players i also think just the proximate proximity to the premier league whether the Scottish Premiership or MLS, whether um, one of them is better than the other, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. I would say generally MLS is a stronger league in terms of the depth, even though Celtic and Rangers are maybe better teams than you have in MLS. But it's just a fact of the matter that Premier League teams look, I think at this point, look more to Scotland than to MLS. It's certainly easier in terms of like visas and things to get players from Scotland to the Premier League. So 
if you ultimately want to play in the Premier League, but you're maybe not good enough for the Premier League yet, or maybe someone just hasn't noticed you yet, I think Scotland is a, is a good place to go as a stepping stone. Good stepping stone. All right, thank you very much, Graham, And thank you, Lewis Capaldi, for that question. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking Saudi Arabia. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Uh, wellness check for you, Graham Ruthven. You're under your comforter in your uh, home in Scotland. Is it still very, very hot? Are you? Uh, do you need a break? No, it's ra- it's raining now, which okay. is... Uh... That, that's the default. That makes me more comfortable. Typically, uh, this is when all the festivals and all the outdoor stuff is, is happening this week. So it's been glorious weather for like a month and now I have to go outside and leave my house and it'll be pouring with rain tonight. Uh, Scotland has regressed to the mean. Uh, it sounds exactly. like it. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Well, good to hear. Uh, let's go to our next question. It is from Chili's Over Applebee's. Now, this guy gets it, Graham. This guy gets it because he knows who picks the questions around here. I agree entirely. What's the with difference? That. What's the difference between the two, Ryan, in your opinion? Uh, one's delicious. They're both quite good. They're both of the same category of restaurant, but Chili's just has the edge. Just a higher I- grade. I think so. In terms of like the the dishes, or in terms of like the quality of the meat, or like what what's is it just better? I think it's probably personal preference, to be honest. Um, they're both probably quite the same. They're very similar menus, very similar price points. But uh, I'm a Chili's man. We're a Chili's the, family. The, the sense I'm getting here, this is ve- this is a very tribal matter. You're you're either born into a Chili's family or an Applebee's family, and when you consider it, there's not much. It's a bit like Man United and Liverpool. There's not really that much of a difference between the two identities. Yeah. But you're just born into one of the other. Yeah. We we watched a movie with Tom Hanks on Netflix the other day where he, he like he he only likes Fords and his neighbour likes Chevrolets and like they couldn't get along because of that. Like it's that kind of brand loyalty that makes no sense. Wait, hold on, this was a film. Uh, it's called A Man Called Otto or something like that. It's a really good movie. Oh, I saw I saw trailers for that at the yeah, cinema. It's not it's bad. It's about a guy who doesn't like his neighbour because he has a different car to him. That's one of the. It's not. That's not the sole plot point. But it, one of it, it, it transpires. He's like this guy's a Chevrolet driver. Hmm. And there's the same thing in Australia. It's Holden, which is GM against Ford. Like there's like they have fan clubs of one car to the other, and they don't mix. That's that. That's I don't know. What, we're going off track talking about Chili's <laughs> and Applebee's here. Why don't we get to the actual <laughs> question, Graham? Uh, with the amount of money Saudi Arabia is throwing at stars, is it inevitable that they become one of the biggest li- names, the biggest leagues in the world? Excuse me. And I apologise, says Chili's over Applebee's, for the potentially depressing topic. Uh, I think this is very interesting. It's a very interesting point to make, Graham. My my initial reaction to this, is it inevitable they become one of the biggest leagues in the world, is no. Because it depends on the intention of Saudi Arabia and it depends on their commitment to the project. And I think the, we have a very recent case study of this kind of thing happening in the Chinese Super League, do we not? So we look back to 2015, 2016, when the 
Chinese Super League was making a lot of signings, even maybe a bit earlier than as well. So a lot of high-profile players going over there. Oscar going from Chelsea for £60 million. The, he was Chelsea's biggest ever sale at the time. I think he's still there, incredibly enough. Um, Gareth, even though the Chinese Super League has collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're not letting him leave. He's just working. We will a... get our money's worth out of you. He's just doing like odd jobs around the home of the team owner, like just yeah. doing the dishes, mowing the lawn. He's a server. He's at Chili's. He's at Chinese Chili's now. Um, <laughs> Gareth Bale nearly went there. Carlos Tevez went there and played occasionally when he wasn't going to Disney World instead. Um, but then thing kind of collapsed. They had they had some rules put in. They had limited foreign players in the squad to three players. And in 2018, they imposed a 100% tax on foreign players over $7 million. So any amount over that, you paid the exact same transfer fee to the league, ergo to the state. And you had a few teams who were owned by real estate conglomerates who very much suffered over the past few years in the financial crisis and COVID. So basically wasn't the funding for the teams in the Chinese Super League. So it's also important to note, Graham, I'd say that the Chinese Super League probably has different intentions to Saudi Arabia. The intention of China, of China was to raise the standard of soccer in China, which is why they kind of implemented these rules gradually to say we want more Chinese players in the teams, for example. I'm not sure raising the standard of Saudi Arabian soccer is the primary driver for Saudi Arabian soccer cr- recruiting all these players right now. So Taylor and I recorded uh, a Soccer 101 episode all about Saudi Arabian soccer. I don't believe that has been published yet, but it'll be out um, relatively soon, I I believe. So go and have a listen to that if you're interested in hearing more about this topic. It's certainly a, a storyline in soccer at the moment that is becoming kind of dominant with the number of players that are being linked to, to Saudi clubs. I agree, Ryan, that it isn't inevitable and you're right to outline the the purpose that the Saudi Pro League has here because I don't think they've really made that clear, actually, at the moment, what they want to do because right now there are foreign player rules in the Saudi Pro League. I think it's you can have... Uh, I did this in my research for 101. Is it seven foreign players? I think that rises to eight foreign players for next season. So that is obviously a, a restriction that isn't in place in the Premier League or La Liga or the big European leagues. And until they kind of either erase that restriction or, or lift or raise the number of players that you can sign from foreign countries, then I don't think they will ever challenge the big European leagues because because of that. They will, they'll have to have homegrown players in the squads. And until now, that has been the purpose of the Saudi Pro League. If you look at the, 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 the Saudi national team that played at the 2022 World Cup, Every single player in that Saudi national team played for Saudi clubs. They were the only um, team, the only national team at the World Cup to have a completely 100% homegrown squad. Obviously, there has been a shift since then with Cristiano Ronaldo going there, Karim Benzema going there. He will receive $623 million over three years, which works out at, I believe, $4 million a week, which makes him the second highest paid player in the world behind Cristiano Ronaldo which is insane, Hmm. Um, but it gives you an idea as to why he so quickly packed up his things at Real Madrid and said, see you later, and uh, moved to Al-Etihad, I think is the club that he has joined. This discussion has shifted quite a bit, even in the last few weeks. So when Taylor and I recorded that 101 episode, at that point, Saudi Arabia was going after either aging players like Messi, who obviously they didn't get, and Ronaldo and Benzema, or out-of-contract players or players that they could get for for no transfer fee. So N'Golo Kante, Chelsea were quite happy to let him free, let him go for nothing. Um, there was a couple others as well out of contract. Ugo Lloris, I think Spurs are 
um, thought to be quite happy to let him leave once they get a replacement. But since then, Saudi Arabian clubs have signed Ruben Neves for a fee of what was it forty-seven million pounds? Mm. I saw. T- I read today that Son Hyung Min is apparently going to be the subject of a fifty million pounds offer from a Saudi club. So all of a sudden, you talk about the Chinese Super League clubs making waves in football a few years ago, and that was the comparison that. I and a number of people instinctively drew with what the Saudi Pro League clubs were doing and the players that they were going after. Maybe on a higher level, you know, Ronaldo and Benzema in terms of their legacy are greater players than any players that went to China. But there was a, there was, you could draw parallels between the types of players that went to China and the types of players that were going to Saudi Arabia. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about players that are in their, their prime years. Newcastle and Barcelona apparently wanted Ruben Neves before he went to Saudi Arabia. Song Hyung-min, I know he had a, ba- a bad season last year, but still, what is he, maybe like 29, 30 years old? And you would mm. consider him one of the best attackers in the Premier League. Now, we don't know whether he actually is going to entertain a contract offer from a Saudi club, but the fact that they are making offers for these players says to me they believe they're completely in, in play for these sorts of, sort of players and they, they, they can get them. So if we're going to get big names in their prime going to Saudi Arabia, then maybe I change my answer. Maybe the answer is, yes, inevitably it will become one of the best leagues in the world. Maybe not a big five European league, but if we're talking about just outside that and we're looking at the Dutch league there, Divisie and MLS and um, you know the Portuguese league, then yeah, maybe Saudi Arabia with the money they're spending can accelerate their growth to that point very, very quickly. It just seems, Graham, I accept that point, but it just seems that historically we've been told that Leagues that pump a lot of money in very quickly do not tend to last. You look at in the States with the NASL, you look at the Chinese Super League. If if there's a large injection of cash like there is here, it feels like it's not sustainable, if that makes sense. And they've they got to have something that makes it sustainable long term rather than bringing in these kind of players for extortionate amounts of money. It's to, to me, that's what makes me think it's not going to end up, you know, one of the one of the big contenders going forward for a sustained period of time. We've never seen this amount of money behind a new a new league, though. We've, I've just Googled the value of the the PIF, the Public Investment Fund, which is the, the fund that bought Newcastle United. It's the fund that started Live Golf. This isn't just the value of Saudi Arabia as a country. This is the money that they have ring-fenced into this investment fund to spend on things, whether it's investing in Disney or Twitter or buying sports teams. The value of PIF is $1 trillion. (laughs) So they're spending a lot of money on footballers right now. There's a lot more money in the bank account for them to spend on more players. And that's where there's the the big difference. The other thing is, in Europe, Paul McDonald for um, footballtransfers.com wrote a really interesting piece on this. He used to be uh, an executive for Goal.com and he's, he's pretty influential um, kind of in the business of soccer, I would say. And he's saying behind closed doors, there is this movement, even if they're not ad- ad- admitting it or publicly admitting it, there's a movement from the elite level clubs to bring in things like a salary cap and kind of bring down the spending in European football because it's just, it's just not sustainable in the long term. You're now talking about 100 million euros being the standard for like an elite level player in European football. That's what West Ham want for Declan Rice. I think Declan Rice is a good player, but 100 million euros or 100 million pounds for Declan Rice is insane. So there is a chance that within the next 10 years, we do have more restrictions. Obviously, we have FFP already. If that happens, 
Saudi Arabia is not beholden to those restrictions. They can spend whatever they want. All of a sudden, the best players in the world are looking to Saudi Arabia to get the money that they believe they're worth. That's a big threat to European football as well. So I don't think Saudi Arabia is going to disappear. The fact that they want to host the World Cup in 2030, I think that pretty much guarantees this investment is going to continue until they host the World Cup, similar to how Qatar put in a lot of money to sport and football until the 2022 World Cup. And there's now already a sense that they're starting to scale things back now that the World Cup is in the rearview mirror. Let's say that World Cup is 2034, which I think is the more realistic prospect. That means we've got 10 years of Saudi Arabia spending this money. What sort of damage, what sort of impact can they make in world football in 10 years? When they're spending this sort of money, I would say they they can make a pretty big impact, in my opinion. We shall see. All right. Thank you very much, Chili's over Applebee's for that question. Let's go to Robert Cordova, who says, with Man City winning a treble, which are the best trebles throughout football history that the TSS gang thinks are the best? Bit of a tautology there. Best a few times in the question. Should have edited that, Graham. Anyway, I think I will start the bidding at 1999 and the Manchester United. This, I was I was quite young when this happened, Graham, and you were even younger. Uh but I remember it being an incredibly exciting... It was basically a week and a half. So Man United won the league on the last day by one point. I think they beat Tottenham on the last day. The following weekend, they win the FA Cup final. Uh, they beat Newcastle in the FA Cup final. Four days later, remember this is a midweek Champions League final. Uh, they do the famous thing they did at the Camp Nou over Bayern Munich, the 2 um dramatic win, which Pep Guardiola famously watched as a young boy, as he recently told us, <laughs> despite being captain of Barcelona at the time. Um, so that was a week and a half of basically like the most successful week and a half that a sports person could ever hope to have, winning three trophies in that period. And obviously, Man City have done something similar over a period of, what was it, three weeks or something? But still, I just remember that being a very, very exciting time. First English club to do so as well. And the circumstances, Graham, in which they did it, like in clutch moments, winning the league on the last day, coming back in the in injury time to win the Champions League final. That is, that's Hollywood stuff for me. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think Cities this season is the most dominant and most impressive treble win that I have ever seen. But my United takes some beating for drama and excitement. And even in the FA Cup, so they kind of swept aside Newcastle United in the final. You'll remember, Ryan, the semi-final of that mm. FA Cup run against Arsenal. Arsenal. Yeah. One of the most famous games in English football history. My United, another comeback. There's the, the gigs... Um, solo dribble goal and then the celebration <laughs> uh, yeah clearly manscaped not a thing in 1999 <laughs> um, so yes absolutely I, I, I would agree mine is, is, is up there um, let's run through the teams that have actually done a treble um, so Man City became the 10th team to win a treble and that essentially as I understand it means a league title a major cup it tends to be the major cup. So in England, you would consider the FA Cup to be more of a major cup than the domestic Caribbean Cup. cup. Yeah, yep, domestic cup. And then the Champions League or European Cup in one season. So there are 10 teams that have done that in history. You have Celtic in 1967. You have Ajax in 1972. PSV Eindhoven in 1988. Then Manchester United in 1999. Pep's Barcelona team in 2009. Mourinho's Inter team in 2010. Um, Heinke's Bayern Munich in 2013, then mm. Barcelona again in 2015, Bayern Munich again in 2020, and then um, Manchester City in obviously this season in 2023. 
So, as I say, Manchester United is the, the most dramatic in my mind. Um, also, just one I think I remember most vividly, even as a seven or eight-year-old. I kind of remember watching that Champions League final. I remember where I was watching th- that game. Um, I have to mention Celtic winning it in 1967 as one of the most impressive as well. They became the first British team to win the European Cup. The most amazing thing about that was every player came from a 20-kilometre radius of, of Celtic Park. It was a completely homegrown team and the Lisbon Lions are still considered the greatest Scottish team in history to this day and I actually did a a Patreon walk around video of Celtic Park a while ago and there are all sorts of references to the Lisbon Lions one of the stands is called the Lisbon Lions stands and there's there's statues there's all sorts of things around uh, Celtic Park to look at in reference to that great team in terms of the modern trebles though so I've got City is the most dominant the most impressive I've got Mine is the most dramatic in terms of the 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 modern trebles though the the one that stands out to me as a gross overachievement is Inter's from 2010 so yes Celtic Ajax and PSV they all did it as non-big five leagues uh, league teams but they they did it in a different era when that sort of thing was possible I don't even know back then if you would consider there to be a a big five league structure there was a bit more parity across the leagues in, in in Europe but Inter won a treble when Italian teams were a long way behind the curve and Mourinho did it with a team that yes had talent but you wouldn't say it was like a golden group of players. You know, when he did it with when he did it with Porto, um, I know he didn't win the treble with Porto, but he won the Champions League with Porto in 2004. There was like a golden group of players in that team and a load of those players went on to, you know, greater things with bigger clubs and bigger teams and, and bigger leagues. You wouldn't really say that about um, Mourinho's Inter team. He very much maximised the, the talent in that squad. They beat Guardiola's Barca in the semi-finals, so arguably the best team in history. Um, Inter beat them at the camp now. You had that famous Mourinho celebration where he sprints the the length of the pitch to celebrate in front of the, the Barcelona directors who <laughs> famously um, picked Guardiola over him for the Barcelona jobs, a job a couple years earlier. He made Marco Materazzi cry in the car park after the match. So yeah, just a sensational achievement all round and an Italian team winning a treble just feels... It kind of feels, and this is quite sad because, you know, Italian football has such heritage and, and such history and they are a big five league, but that just feels like something that maybe couldn't happen now. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And the reverberations, I'd say, in Italy are still felt for that inter-treble, I'd say. Certainly in Rome, where Jose Mourinho is uh, currently uh, employed, where he's he's adored generally in Italy. And when the Inter fans come, it's like a complete loving in the stadium. It's quite something to see. I realise, Graham, I've, I'm lucky enough to have been to two Champions League finals in my life, 2010 and 2013, Inter and Bayern, both teams completing a treble. So if there's any teams out there who need to complete a treble for a Champions League <laughs> final coming up in the next few years, invite this guy. That's my... Uh, Has, hasn't worked for Wimbledon yet, though. Not yet, no. No, we need to get uh, <laughs> a few steps on the rung, before rungs on the ladder, I should say, before we can um, uh, reach that lofty goal, Graham. But it's coming, it's coming, believe me. Does, does Barcelona's 2009, Graham, have extra meaning because they won the sextuple, they won the Super Cup, they won the UEFA Super Cup, and they won the Club World Cup as well? Six trophies in that year. Um, I mean, I guess it has a little bit of an extra meaning, but some of those some of those trophies are achievements. They're like supplementary achievements, aren't they, to the main achievement. Mm-hmm. So like winning the Super Cup is very much a reward of winning the Champions League. So I, I don't know if I consider that like a trophy in its in its own right. I'm not saying there's not value to to winning it, but it is a, a kind of one off match, a very unique match. But yeah, they were they were a, a a fantastic team, 
Would you consider that team to be better than the 2011 Barcelona team, which I don't believe won the treble that year? I think maybe Real Madrid won the Copa del Rey that season. Mm. But when I think of Pep's best Barcelona team, I think 2011 over 2009, to be honest, even though 2009 won more. Yeah, well, that's the one that Sir Alex Ferguson said was the best team that ever played on the planet. And on that note, Graham, those you mentioned 10 teams have won the treble. If you were to put them all together in their prime in a little mini knockout tournament, how much would Man City win it by? <laughs> um, this is one of those things where I give a boring answer about like modern teams being better. Like even the like a top four as a modern, like a 2023 top four Premier League team better than like a mid nineties Champions League winning team. I think potentially they are. That's just kind of how time works. So I don't know whether that I am factoring that in. But yeah, I would say all things considered, I would say the two Pep teams in here are probably the the best of the lot, Man City this season and in Barcelona in 2009. There you go. All right, thank you very much, Robert, for that question. Quick break time. When we come back, we are going to be CEOs at Bayern Munich. Hope we don't get fired. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Bobby Doxtator has been in touch and says, you guys are the CEOs at Bayern Munich and are trying to figure out how to best address the striker and holding midfielder positions Tuchel would like in the summer. You have a transfer budget of $120 million. Hmm. Who would you bring in? 120 for two key positions, Graham. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, this is a bit of a challenge because that isn't a, a huge amount in today's transfer market. However... I do wonder if, if if Bobby has taken that number from from the real world. Is that what Bayern Munich have to spend this summer? Because obviously they can't quite compete with the big Premier League teams or even Barcelona and Real Madrid in, in the transfer market in terms of paying big fees. So that might actually be what they have to spend mm. this summer. So my strategy here was I'm looking at players who have one year left on their contract to maximise that, that, that budget. And for the holding midfield position, I have two suggestions. So I have a young prospect who could be a part of the team for the next 10 years to come in. And I have a, a, short-term, a short-term solution, excuse me, who makes the team better right now, but maybe only has five years left at the top. So my short-term solution, I'll give you that one first, is Sofian Amrabat. So obviously one of the stars of the Qatar World Cup. Um, he then backed that up by being excellent for Fiorentina, in the second half of the season, who reached the Europa Conference League final. So when we spoke about Amrabat being linked with some of the biggest clubs in Europe after the World Cup, I, I was wary because we hadn't really seen that sort of level from him before. But as I say, he's been very impressive since then. 
I've seen 25 million euros as the fee that Fiorentina want for him. So that works well within my budget. So he's one option. If I'm shopping at a slightly higher price point, uh, and I'm thinking of the long term, a player for the next 10 years, I'm going for uh, Romeo Lavia from Southampton. Um, Southampton apparently want 50 million pounds for him. So what's that, like 60 million euros? Yeah. Um, still only 19 years old. He made mistakes for Southampton last season. He's still very raw, got a bit of developing to do, but he's got incredible potential. You get the sense that if you surrounded him with better players, he would his growth would accelerate pretty quickly. So you can bring him in, you can develop him as one of the best young holding midfielders around. So he's another option. For my striker, I've, I've actually got a few options. Right now, it seems like there are a, a good number of number nines on, on the market. Some of them out of my budget you know Harry Kane I would pray well I need more than 120 million dollars for Harry Kane I feel like but Dusan Vlavic is available for 80 million euros he's had a rough time at Juventus but I'm still a big fan of his um, and at Bayern I think he could play the Lewandowski role really well of basically being in the box and finishing chances which is something they lacked last season and leaving a, a lot of the build-up play to the to guys like Nabry and Coleman and, and, and Miller. So I think he could fit into that team pretty well. He has actually been linked with Bayern Munich pretty strongly, so it seems like they agree on that one. Interestingly, Letaro Martinez, who I would consider to be generally a better player, a higher-level player than Dusan Vlavic, um, he's apparently available for 70 million euros this summer, but less than Vlaovic. I think that is probably related to Inter's financial state, the perilous financial state at the moment. They need to sell a few key players. Martinez has been sensational this season. Um, I kind of find he plays his best football when he has a strike partner to bounce off. So that that might require a bit of a tactical shift from Tuchel. Um, but I think Thomas Muller could maybe play that role. Uh, him and Martinez up front. Hmm. I think that could be very fluid. That could work for, for Bayern Munich. So, my, t- my two picks, if I have to pick from those options, would be Lavia, because I think he's going to be a star in the future. And I think Bayern Munich seems like the right sort of club for him and the right sort of system for him. And Lataro Martinez. And that possibly puts me just over 120 million euros, my budget. I'm getting the most out of that budget. You know how you get the little coin trays in, at the checkout at, at fuel stations? I might need a couple of those when I'm, when I'm paying for those, uh, for those two players. But yeah, those are my two picks. Okay, you might need a couple of fuel stations rather than the, the coin trays, <laughs> but we'll see. Um, the Vlavic one's interesting. He's more expensive than Lotaro. Uh what, why has he struggled at Juventus, do we think, this season? Is it it's just a compatibility issue? This is me pointing to everything at Juventus okay, uh, okay. off camera. Um, yeah, I just think that team is a bit of a mess right now. There's yeah. not a structure. He's not getting any service. The, one of the players that could have provided him with service is uh, Chiesa, who spent much of the season injured. Yeah. So... I actually think Juventus should keep Vlavic. I think he's a high potential player. Um, and he actually started reasonably well. He, when he came in last season, he did he did quite well at Juventus initially. And then this season has been a disaster. But I think this season has been a bit of a disaster for everyone at Juventus. So I think Bayern Munich would... It seems like a sort of Bayern Munich move to go and pick off a player from another big elite level club who's maybe not done it there we saw it with Coleman of course Kingsley Coleman did they not sign him from Juventus actually he went from PSG to Juventus and then Bayern Munich so yeah I think that would work for them so I think you're not actually getting the CEO job ultimately Graham because you didn't take any Borussia Dortmund players in your swoop oh but, uh, man uh, unlucky unlucky with that one uh very yeah, I, good I, I also can't really match Oliver Kahn for his like vociferous 
every actions in the stands like during matches i can't really do that sort of thing and that feels like a prerequisite for Bayern munich ceos right now yeah Bayern munich uh top brass tend to be yeah, like that or go to prison sometimes uh as we have seen <laughs> in the past bobby thank you very much for that question thank you graham for your extensive uh answer there as well matt adler has a question which relates a little bit graham to the last big thing where we spoke about paris Saint-Germain. matt's question if neymar and Kylian mbappe leave psg this summer how would you rebuild the squad to be a Champions League contender? So this, this, as I say, lends to the discussion we've already had, Graham. Is it a question of promoting from within a bit more, going big elsewhere? If Either way, it feels like a fairly serious reckoning's coming for this team soon, right? Yeah, they're at a crossroads. Um, I think Matt's question, it really depends on whether we're talking about how do they become a Champions League contender immediately, like next season? Or are we talking about in the long term? Because mm. I would very much lean into the youth at PSG. That seems to be um, something they plan on doing. They have said that before, though, and not really, not really done it. So I've, I have um, kind of cut it down the middle. I've, I've split the difference. I'm trying to build a team that can compete right now, but then also in the long term as well. So I think the biggest thing PSG have to do um, is push their entire team up the pitch. The way, the way they play, it's very reactive, it's very deep, and then they just get it forward to Mbappe as quickly as possible. So obviously if Mbappe's leaving, they won't have that option. And if you look at the best teams at the top of European soccer, they, they don't play this way. They're, they're much more proactive, they're much higher up the pitch. So I'm pushing my team high up the pitch. That then means I need a centre-back with good recovery speed. So long-term, I'd want William Saliba, um, and there has actually been some chat that PSG are trying to put in place the building blocks of a deal that maybe happens next summer or two summers uh, time. But right now, I'd be signing Pau Torres, who is as quick as anything and available for 40 million euros this summer from Villarreal. I also need a defender who can play out from the back because Donnarumma, Donnarumma doesn't really do that. And if I'm pushed high up the high up the pitch, my defensive line, I'm going to need a defender that's pretty comfortable holding onto the ball in that position. So I'm spending big on Alessandro Bastoni to do that from, from Inter Milan. Inter Milan, as I just mentioned, having to sell a few key players this summer. So you can maybe tempt Inter Milan to, into selling him for around about 60 to 70 million euros. Bastoni, I'm a massive fan of his. Maybe a little bit more comfortable in a back three, but I think he can play on the left side of a, of, of a, a centre-back pairing and a back four. Um, if you're also pushing... Hakimi high up the pitch is almost a winger you want someone that can play in a central back three so Bastoni is very good for that and then I also would want Lucas Hernandez from Bayern Munich who can play in that in that back three when Hakimi's high up the pitch on the right side Hernandez actually seems like he is going to PSG so that that is a good signing I like that if he can stay fit and injury fee injury free excuse me that is a, a pretty good addition then I'm going to look to a midfield creator. So if they're going to be higher up the pitch and more possession-based, I need someone who's going to do something with that possession. And if I'm getting rid of Mbappe, Messi and Neymar in one summer, my reasoning is I'm going to have a big budget. That's a lot of that's a lot of salary off the books. So my big marquee summer signing is Jamal Musiala from Bayern Munich. There's some chat about his contract at Bayern Munich right now. Maybe he would fancy earning loads and living in Paris. Um, I love Musiala. I think he's a great player. He's he's so adaptable, versatile. He can pretty much play everywhere in every position. He can he drops into central midfield. He goes out wide. He takes up central positions. And it feels like PSG sort of need players like that, cohesion players who can pick up the ball anywhere on the, on the pitch. And then if I need a striker, second mention of this guy, I'm going for Lautaro Martinez. Um, but then beneath that, 
I'm promoting youth like uh, Zaire Emery, who's a, a central midfielder, Ismael Garbi, attacking midfielder, Timothy Pembele, a right back. These are all players that if anyone plays football manager out there, you can pick these guys up for relatively cheap and they go on to become superstars. They are highly rated at, at PSG. So these are the guys that maybe aren't ready to go into the first team right now. I mean, Zaire Emery has had a good number of first team appearances, so he's maybe the closest to making that breakthrough. But these are the guys that you can you can make a plan for the next few years and have that transition into them being the key figures maybe five years from now. Wow, that's a that's quite a, a rebuild there, Graham. Um, isn't it that there's that philosophy question that if you have a boat and you replace all the parts and there's no original parts anymore, is it still the same boat? Uh, I think that's probably a good thing for PSG yeah. if they're a different boat. <laughs> Maybe so. There's yeah, a- it is quite it is quite a rebuild. But if they're losing like their three highest paid players, Sergio Ramos is off the books as well this summer. Mm. There's there's chat about a few a few other players as well. Um, Fabian Ruiz, I'm sure I saw links about him going to AC or Inter. So there's a good chance that they'll they'll sell about six or seven players this summer. And that we're talking about PSG here. So they're gonna they're gonna have a lot of money to spend. Yeah. Exciting times ahead. One name I don't think you mentioned, Graham, that I've always thought would be a good PSG fit in the next season or two. Julian Alvarez. If he doesn't want to play second string at Man City, he's the kind of person I see fitting right in and getting a starring role there. I actually love that. I might change Lataro Martinez for Julian Alvarez. I don't know how feasible it is for PSG to get him out of Man City. Maybe he fancies being the man, the main man at a, like a, a, right. a big club. So maybe quite tempting for him. I don't know what Man City would sell him for. But again, he's he's the sort of player that I just think PSG need more of. Mm-hmm. More versatility, more 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 adapt adaptability, players who are comfortable in the ball, players who can play a number of different positions. That's how they become a modern team. So yeah, I totally agree. Alvarez is, is a very good shout. If they could get their hands on, on him, that would be a great signing. Depends if he wants to foden it up and not play as many minutes as he should. We shall see. Matt, thank you very much for that question. One final one for this episode from Trevor Peralta. What is one rule change you'd make involving goalkeepers that would make the game more entertaining or efficient? I've got a couple of ideas, Graham. I'll start the bidding at goal kicks have to be passed outside of the 18-yard box and forwards as well. I uh, At the recent Coppa Italia final, um, Inter and Fiorentina, Inter were constantly playing out from the back with two-yard lateral passes inside the box and building very, very close to their own goal. It was quite exciting because it was risky because they were getting pressed for it. But also I was like, just, just, just push it further down the field. Come on. We don't need to. <laughs> there's playing out from the back and then there's doing it on a micro scale like that. I'm not saying like, lump, lump it down the field. Just half it, half it down the pitch. <laughs> I'm saying, you know, that, that's that you've gone, you've gone into back pass territory of making it tedious when you're doing it in that shorter space of, of, of the field. So you're essentially rolling back the rule change that was made like a few seasons uh-huh. ago, because uh-huh. that because that used to be the case yep. that you had to play the goal kick outside the box. Why is it better then... to play inside? That's what I want to know. Because more teams want to play out from the back. I think it's quite entertaining. Seeing if they a want team... to play out from the back, then they can have the challenge of placing it outside the box. It makes it more entertaining. Think about how many moments we've had with Ederson, like nearly being tackled on his own goal line. And how entertaining it is when he just about gets away with it. Or, the flip side, when everything goes wrong for a goalkeeper and they just get tackled into the back of their own net, which seems to be happening more and more. And I think that is related to this rule and the fact that more teams are taking more risks and playing inside their own box. 
So I say we keep this rule. I think this is more entertaining to have it like this rather than just having teams like punt it up the pitch. All right, addendum to the rule. All goal kicks have to clear the halfway line. So we're just going full <laughs> big Sam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean I'm more I'm I'm more in favour of that. If you're gonna go if you're gonna go one way, you know, go to one of the extremes. Literally. So. Yeah, going big. All right, what have you got for this one, Graham? So I've got loads of ideas on how to make goalkeeping more entertaining. I'm not sure about more uh, efficient. Those things seem to be and they seem to be contradictory right. in contradiction of each other. So for starters, they, they have to play with only one hand behind their back in, in stoppage time. Um another idea, when a team kicks off both, both goalkeepers have to start the game on the halfway line when the, the game kicks off and then they sprint back as quickly as possible to tempt the opposition team into taking a, a shot from the halfway oh. line. Um, these aren't very efficient though, so that's what I mean. They're, 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 they're a bit contradictory. Those, those two ideas are contradictory. My actual boring answer, and this is boring, would be to regulate the size of goalkeeper gloves, which at the moment isn't regulated at all. And in researching for this question, I found out that in the goalkeeping world and the goalkeeping community this is quite the hot button uh, topic so apparently goalkeepers regularly wear gloves that are far too big for them in order to make their hands bigger obviously and then they make they, they make more saves they save more shots so that's a change that barely anyone besides goalkeepers would notice and it might just nudge the number of goals per season up a tiny bit i think you need a, a large sample size to notice any sort of difference mm. so that's one that's maybe both entertaining and efficient but as i say i struggle with the efficient part of the question let's just go full chaos with some of the changes from the entertainment side of things that's interesting on the gloves a, a glove not fitting has never posed any other sports person in history a problem of any no. kind that i can remember um yeah that glove certainly wasn't too big <laughs> i've got is there something else i can no, Siri, I'm good. Um, <laughs> one other one I had for you, Graham. And this one, I think, is has got a lot of strategy to it. Many teams, or most teams, will have, what, three goalkeepers? They have a couple on the, in the squad, at least, like for an interception yeah. and, and whatnot. In a shootout, you are allowed multiple goalkeepers in the shootout. You can pick who, which, which goalkeeper faces which player. Uh, and they don't have to be goalkeepers. They can be outfield players if you want as well. So basically, you are throwing an extra... Uh, spanner into the works if you will here by the opposition not knowing which goalkeeper they're going to face great right awards give me awards and money prizes please thank you I quickly like that suggestion but I just think 99 times out of 100 every team's going to just stick with their normal goalkeeper their first choice goalkeeper I kind of like the idea of again not efficient at all but entertaining you have to have every, in, a, in a shootout you, your goalkeeper has to take one of the first five penalties because everyone likes a goalkeeper taking a penalty. Of As I say, not efficient, but certainly entertaining. Okay, okay. Th- these, are, these are the kind of ones, these shootout ones, are the ones which I think would have the most chance of passing through as an actual rule change, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, they mess around with the shootout rules like every season. Goalkeepers now have to have a leg behind the line to make a save, like contorting their body in all sorts of shapes to now make a save from the the shootout as if the the outfield player didn't have enough of an advantage having a unopposed shot from 12 yards out (laughs) now goalkeepers need to be gymnast gymnasts and do gymnastics exactly and if we're going to extend goalkeeper uh, rule changes just have goalie wars instead of shootouts then right that's the oh definitely in favor of that again not not sure if efficient, but certainly entertaining. Indeed. Well, it's all about entertainment. As you say, they're not necessarily on the same channel as efficiency and entertainment uh, in this instance. Thank you very much, Trevor, for that question. Graham, I think we have listener-questioned ourselves out for this episode. How are you feeling? 
Good, indeed we have. Uh, that was that was a good selection of questions. I like how you, when it's the two of us, you tailor you tailor um, them for our, our our tendencies and our identities and personalities. A, a lot of chaos questions and and maybe not a lot of uh, tactical stuff in there. Did you save all the tactical stuff for Joe when he comes back? Maybe. <laughs> yeah maybe i'm in favor yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, full-on chaos episode well i'm glad you enjoyed the chaos graham and listener i hope you enjoyed it too but graham for now thank you very much for your services to this here podcast thank you ryan bailey and listener thank you once again for joining us on this journey we'll be back on the feed very shortly as will taylor and joe but for now bye, bye.